I write plenty of postcards, yet I have terrible handwriting. I type many things, yet in decades of doing so, despite a litany of typewriters and various computational devices, I remain a <laughs> clumsy typist. And lo, indeed, I record many a slice of audio in various locations using a variety of different means and circumstances. And sometimes, well, they turn out lousy. And then they sit in some digital shoebox, as it were, waiting their fate. Do they end up deleted and disappeared from the human consciousness? Or is this designed to be a message to a future self? Well, I suspect just by me saying this, you figured out that I'm about to give you some olden audio of very mediocre quality, yet I can't help but to share it because it's talking about the group of seven Canadian painter, originally from England, Frederick Varley, while I'm alongside my beloved Lynn Creek where the painter, the bohemian, once lived himself. How can I not share this? It's not wonderful but it comes from me heart. In the 1920s, Vancouver was a very different place. A city of longshoremen, industry, the end of the road. Culture-wise, it was kind of an outpost. A group of high-minded citizens got together and set an ambitious mission for Vancouver to establish an art school and a gallery and an arts community here in Vancouver. They started the school, but they needed a ringer to give the school some credibility. So they harvested from Ontario a member of the group of seven, the esteemed group of seven, who are already well established in Canada. And they got Frederick Varley, the bohemian of the group, to come out. Some called him the unproductive member. Some called him the genius artist of great skill. He was an experienced World War I battlefield painter who had immigrated to Canada from England an avowed pacifist after seeing the horrors of the war. He had fallen in with a world of commercial artists, including fellow Group of Seven member. They had, together with Tom Thompson and the rest of the renegade pack, they'd head up to the Algonquin Mountains, the Algonquins, and lakes and rivers, Stormy Bay, Georgian, Georgian Bay, Stormy Weather became Varley's, one of his few landscapes, but an early masterpiece that still hangs in the National Gallery of of Canada and Ottawa. So Varley and his son set out with a free train ticket to Vancouver, leaving the wife and daughter behind to hold a yard sale, try to sell a few paintings to get passage out to Vancouver. Over the next 10 years, Varley mm, sparked a West Coast aesthetic of art in which he fused the grandeur of Canadian nature with influences from China, the old landscape scroll paintings in Japan and other places, especially uh, European color theory, to kind of form a bridge between the impressionist and the abstractionist. He might slot Varley's paintings at first blush in be somewhere in between Van Gogh and Munch. Mostly a portraiturist, he inspired the next wave of, Kine of Vancouver West Coast artists. His influence ranged to his collaborator, the early arts photographer, John Vanderpant. Over, it was only 10 years in which Varley lived in Vancouver, and he left destitute, 
owing 18 months back rent on a place he had rented in Lynn Valley for $8 a month, including a piano. His wife and kids stayed behind, as well as his mistress, and a legacy of West Coast art, including his stint at what's now become Emily Carr College of Art and Design, and another renegade spin-off that he started with uh, fellow bohemian painter Jock McDonald, the Scotsman. Now, very little of Varley remains in Vancouver beyond this artistic legacy. But one can probably find closest to his soul sitting right where I am at now. Here on the banks of the Lynn Creek, a few feet from where he painted Bridge Over Lynn Valley. In a state of poverty, instead of canvases and oils, this was done on a torn off pieces of insulation with watercolor gauche. Is that how you say it? Gauche? <laughs> charcoal lines. The inspirations from all over the world fused on one little piece. We also painted Drayana, Drenana, uh, a portrait, so to speak, of his mistress and lover. Well, that's none of our business. Vera Weatherby. Gazing skyward in a state of sort of transcendent questioning. Leaned up against a ranger's cabin on a cold night around Rice Lake. You could probably get closer to Varley up here on the side of this river where the trail's named in his honor. You can follow this trail around a path that takes you a, both sides of the river and around Rice Lake, should one choose, where he would frequently take his stomping missions. Before he lived here in Lynn Valley, though, he would load up students and his compatriots like Vanderpant, and they would head up in the North Shore Mountains. And it was on one of these treks one day, they looked down and he saw this little cabin down there. Now this area was fairly developed because it's been all, it was, you know, active logging and recently been logged. So it's sort of built up around here but still remote, still relatively is today. And he found and tracked down this place. But he'd lived, before then, he'd lived all over Vancouver. You see, when he first settled in with his family, he lived on Jericho Beach. And Jericho was a little far flung, now some of the most prestigious and expensive real estate in Vancouver. But it was there, pardon me while I sip my beer. But it was there that he really like, came alive as a dude in Vancouver, right? Because he would take his students and the, Emily, the uh, Vancouver School of Applied Arts and Design, Design and Applied Arts, Arts and Applied Design, uh, was downtown. But he would haul up a bachelor of students and faculty and whoever wanted to come along. And they would party down at his place, drinking wine out on the beach, talking about stuff that now is part of our soul here in Vancouver. This aesthetics and art and culture and design. And I don't mean high-minded culture, right, like fancy pants culture. I mean the kind of culture where people create stuff based on what they see, not based on how they've seen things that other people have seen or the way other people have interpreted, interpreted the same place. How to see things and transmit them into a medium in the way that comes organically from them, with no nothing contrived or nothing copied. And it was here on, uh, it was really just like a boathouse, kind of a little cabin. Now on this piece of land stands the uh, Jericho Vancouver Tennis Club, Jericho Beach Club, what, uh, what the heck's it called? Uh, on one part of it, and then uh, some uh, grand mansion that's now kind of an, a retirement home 
on the other side, there's a little uh, boathouse, a little storage shed. It's probably the closest you could come to fighting Varley. While exploring down there, I sat and wrote a bit of prose to celebrate this connection and met a, an older lady, my, uh, my co-conspirator, art photographer, Chris Krug, went up to her and said, he yeah, lived around here in London oh, all my life. She was an older lady out there rocking the swimsuit, getting a little bit of sun, wrinkly and leathery. And he, and he said, well, we're down here documenting uh, the life of Frederick Varley. Oh, yeah, I know Frederick Varley. Well, what do you know about him? Well, we didn't really talk much about Varley because everyone said he led a different life. I wasn't really sure what that meant, but I know he's a famous painter. But people always spoke about him in hushed tones. It wasn't polite to talk about Varley. <laughs> well, as it turns out, on, uh, one of his students, the young Vera Weatherby, became more than just a student. She would come up to these uh, parties on Jericho and forays up into the North Shore Hills. Became a close collaborator and muse, and, well, we'll leave it at that. But while he was painting these delicious paintings of idyllic Jericho Beach and the North Shore Mountains and capturing the clouds in the water, these things that certainly have been, had done, been done by realists to look close to what you'd see in a photograph today. He was interpreting his own way of this breathtaking opening of potential. This was the concrete is still moist here in our town, in this place. We could still change things, you know, coming from a place like England where things would be, that's the way they were. And coming from seeing the horrors of World War I where you don't have any control over this. And even coming from Ontario, which was an established place with, that they'd tamed the nature in some ways. But coming here, it just seemed like everything was wide open, man. He hung out within Chinatown, specifically sought influence from the Chinese artists. And this became really clear, because like, you know, he got, pardon me, I think I need another sip of beer. So he's teaching this college, partying with his students, teaching all kinds of new ways of teaching. One time he taught, the lesson to the students was attention to detail. He brought in a model, they painted her for the day, maybe two days, at the end of it, he looked at all their paintings one by one, not a, saying a word. And then he started laughing. The model has six toes on her right foot. And nobody had noticed that. He would, mm, the students had, you know, some of the students had just, you know, were just vying for his attention as he would teach them all these different things about color, European color theory and framing art and putting the interesting bits to the outside rather than right smack dab in the middle. About changing your perspective and imagine you're floating up above your subject rather than it being right in front. He would change his technique for each subject that he was painting. It would be an entirely different technique. And he would, uh, uh, do this kind of interdisciplinary teaching with his students and taking them out stomping around in the woods and picking up leaves and considering leaves, considering trees. But then the depression hit here in Vancouver and like, well, everywhere else, and the school ran into some budgetary problems and all the teachers were obliged to take a pay cut except, as he found out, the main dude of the school who had hired him, who, and I'm pardon me, I haven't any notes to remind myself of the names at this moment. <clears throat> and uh, his uh, wife or 
relative of some kind who was also teaching there did also not to take a pay cut. Oh my goodness, scandal. So Farley and, and Jock McDonald said, well, right, we're going to start our own school. So they did. And right downtown, they started a, a school of their own. <clears throat> uh, uh, Vancouver Art College, maybe? You could check all my annotations. And they took their uh, kind of progressive teaching methods even fur further. They would do, uh, they brought in all kinds of characters from all over the world to bring sense of their tra training eurythmics, all the kind of rhythmic movements, uh, meditation, and uh, got really into the abstractionist uh, movement of, of uh, performance art. Hell, they're doing puppetry at this school, right? But it was all crazy and wide open. They brought along the best of a bunch, a bunch of the best students from the other school. A bunch of old, their old uh, students brought them in on, on faculty and formed this kind of like this <clears throat> artistic renaissance in Vancouver in the early 30s, born out of the Depression, that created this amazing foundation of uh, artistic uh, rebellion and creation here in Vancouver in the early 1930s. Now, one of these students that he brought along to be faculty was, again, Vera Witherby, who keeps on coming in and out of this life, doesn't she? And uh, with one of the students' wealthy grandfathers, they acquired some studio space in the, what's now the West End uh, community of downtown. And in this, he painted another Canadian classic, this portrait of Vera, signed with his signature thumbprint, printed his name Varley, and put his thumbprint right over it, so there's no mistake in Varley. And there was Vera Weatherby, but painted this time as a, mm, as a colleague, as a contemporary. And uh, while this play, the location is entirely changed there in the West End, you can feel the joy that the artist felt, like all, all of a sudden having a place of their own where they could go and create and not be bound by any uh, predetermined constraints. Now these students would seek his attention and seek his admiration. Sometimes he'd withhold it, deride them, but then build them up just when they needed it most. Kind of sounds like a, you'd make a good hockey coach, but but I digress. But things weren't all rosy. Varley and the school fell deeper and deeper into debt. He felt like he was having to work more and couldn't concentrate on making his own art. The school spiraled into bankruptcy. His relationship, his family, who had moved to a different location on First Avenue, closer into Kitts from Jericho Beach, only kind of kept up the appearances of being a family. Oddly enough, from the front porch of that house, you have a clear view to Lynn Canyon, it seems just to line up just right. And up here in Lynn Canyon, it also rented this place for eight bucks a month. We was <clears throat> keeping house on his own with, with, uh, along with Miss Weatherby. Together they would paint, they'd create, they'd take walks along these trails. But it was about channeling this poverty and this desperation and these tough circumstances and this confusion about their role together in the world as an older man and a younger lady and this scandalous relationship. As the lady on the beach said, he was a different, he lived a different life. Finally, thinking that, uh, frustrated, as you make these great paintings, you ship them off, and go and be exhibited in London. Wasn't selling anything, right? It'd be uh, taken on tour and held, but the art, uh, contemporary art culture, well, the non-contemporary, the art establishment, kept on going back to his old landscapes from the glory days of the Group of Seven rather than grabbing hold of these new things that he was doing. He felt disenchanted and frustrated as an artist, just kind of gave up, leaving his wife and kids here in the North Shore, and Maud, his wife, eventually, what I heard, bought this house, and I'm just a wee bit up the path here. 
continued living around. Two of his sons, Peter and Christopher, became involved in the art world as dealers and produced some interesting musings while uh, finding homes for some of uh, Frederick's paintings. Frederick went east and uh, found kind of a patron and continued painting, although in and out of this state of depression and, and alcoholism. He surfaced to do a, an interesting little national film board film with him, the artist playing himself, in this, well, it's like a little 15-minute, like, uh, imagining the creative process of an artist. Starts with Varley, coming back from the hills with his backpack, hitchhiking, getting a ride, goes to, walks up to his studio, he's muttering, he wants to paint something, oh, he's a little hungry, runs out to the store, gets some cheese and some bread, starts eating it, oh, my God, it's inspiration, and starts painting, and so it's... Very interesting, though. And then there was some CBC interviews with him as a very old man. Because towards the end of his life, uh, like in the late 50s, he died in, in 69, I believe. Um, in the late 50s, there was a touring retrospective exhibition that went across Canada. People started to pay a little bit more attention. But by then, his work didn't seem as fresh because, you know, it was from 30 years ago. And it had the rest of the world was just starting to catch up. So it didn't seem, well, it just wasn't understood for what it was, right? Now, there's a Varley Museum in Unionvale, Uniondale, Ontario, or something. Uh, and Vancouver Art Gallery has a nice collection of his Varley paintings, of his paintings, which come out from time to time, usually as part of another collection. His paintings, many of them seem to be uh, quite small, as he was always trying to save on materials and short on materials. But uh, um, they also have uh, a fond. A fond is what they call a collection of kind of letters and papers and receipts and ephemeral items somewhere in the archives of Vancouver Art Gallery, which I hope to go look at. The Vancouver Archives has a list of all, provided me with a list of all his addresses where he lived, was registered for the various census, um, from the Badminton Hotel, which is right now right by uh, Holt Renfrew, or uh, the site that it once was at is now across the street from Holt Renfrew, uh, to uh, Jericho, to Kitts, to uh, the locations of the schools, and up here in Lynn Valley. So you could check uh, out a map that I created to see all this and check all your, uh, you know, check them off on your list. But for the closest I've found, besides Jericho and Lynn Valley, I don't know what is it, but I, what it is, but I can sit here. I can almost imagine old Fred there with a, his folding easel, his red-gray hair pushed back in a, in a shock his gaunt and wiry face and steely eyes transfixed on some natural thing. It doesn't really matter what. And seeing that steely-eyed tenderness, you know, this thoughtfulness, this, this evocativeness, this vulnerability that he puts into his paintings and seeing that come together on a canvas. I, Fred, loved the ladies and he loved the nature and he loved the bottle. And well, I think that's something more than just I can relate with. So from the banks of Lynn Creek, here's to you, Varley. Yeah, I figure any sucker with 200 bucks worth of audio equipment and a bit of diligence can record something. <laughs> but it takes an intrepid bard of sorts to go alongside the river, researching the life of a bohemian painter, finding where it is that he actually walked and lived, tracing through census records his last known addresses, photographing them on Kodachrome film, 
putting this all together. Oh, learning about his his buddy John Vanderpant, the photographer. I mentioned Vanderpant, and I can't remember. Anyway, uh, about Varley, I did do another version of this for another podcast uh, channel, Chugalon with Uncle Weed. I haven't listened to it in so long that I can't remember what it says, but I suspect the audio quality is better, but it's not quite so mm, poetic and spontaneous as this one was. Also, there's a three-part series I did for Vancouver Observer, uh, all about all of this, where I dig into museum archives and all kinds of mixed media artifacts. So if you're into this, Dig it, share it, davelstory.com. There you go, there's a URL, and that's your postcard from Gravelly Beach, fondly, comma, Dave.